Developers are a different buying experience, they're a different user experience, they are an entirely different persona if you've traditionally sold to enterprise than what you're used to. If you want to have a roadmap discussion with a customer, we will not tell you what's in the roadmap unless you bring a product manager into the room. You mean sales can sometimes distract engineering? Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, could you just do this one thing for this one customer? You guys are Docker, there must be like thousands of people in that company. There isn't. When you start out from the developer and then move to enterprise, sometimes there's a challenge. How much did you worry about alienating that developer experience? I mean, we started with the default that we weren't going to change any developer experience. Hi, I'm Craig Kirsteins. And I'm Remus Silkaitis. And you're listening to Practical Product, a bi-weekly series where we discuss product management and some of the unique challenges we face in dealing with defining the right product and all of the coordination necessary to help teams build it right. Practical Product is brought to you by HeavyBit a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you have a specific topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us at practicalproducts at heavybit.com or on Twitter at practicalprod. All right, so we'll uh, go ahead and get started for uh, this week. This week we've got Ben Jope from Docker with us, and myself, Craig Kirsteins, and Remus, our host. I'll let Benjo introduce himself a little bit. Sure, thanks, Craig. I'm Benjo Chinana. I run product management for Docker Data Center, which is our enterprise commercial products. I've been with Docker about a year and a half. I've been in product management about ten years or so, maybe just over, and uh, was previously at uh, VMware as well. Great. So I think uh, you know, given your background, right, Docker interesting with developers, um, a enterprise background, and I think Docker, you know, is definitely interesting or growing in interest to in the enterprise. We've got a couple of interesting topics today around. Developers in enterprise, right? Those two don't always kind of go hand in hand in the same sentence. So we can probably just dig right in with, you know, I would love to hear a little bit, you know, from a product manager's perspective, how do you balance that both internally and then externally, right? So like Docker's huge with developers, like massive, massive developer adoption. I remember uh, Solomon's kind of initial opening lightning talk at PyCon, right? And where he unveiled it. And from that point on, just rocket ship. Yeah. But you can tell it's it's been a journey, it looks like, to the enterprise. Can you talk a little bit, kind of just like the product process of that? How do you balance that? Yeah, it's been an interesting foray because when I joined Docker, the open source adoption, the developer adoption was already there. And so that's something I didn't have to worry about. You know, what was interesting was we were already talking to enterprises. So there was a lot of interest from, you know, kind of call it uh, enterprise IT or central IT. And so from the IT side of the house, uh, the more regulated side of the house, we were already getting calls about, well, how do we now adopt this? What do we do? Our developers are already using it. And so there's an interesting journey that happened inside the organizations that, that we didn't really get to see. To be honest, uh, we, we saw the end result of it. Hmm. Um, so that was pretty cool uh, that, that you know, we, we got the benefit of it from the open source side and then it just kind of landed in our lap, quite honestly. That being said, we had to think about product very differently. And you know, coming from VMware, had a strong understanding of what enterprise IT was looking for and what enterprises want out of a product. And so we focused a lot on that. The balance I think we tried to strike was we didn't want to lose the value proposition that Docker brought to the developer. And so we knew if we could find a way to keep the developer audience engaged with the parts of the product that they already knew and loved and not change those pieces, but behind the kind of black box be able to add the capabilities that we knew the enterprise guys wanted. So HA or integration into authentication systems, stuff like that. 
we knew we had to add to the product, but uh, you know we didn't want to change, say, the Docker run interface. Right? Uh, we knew folks wanted to just do Docker run. So. so in theory, I think that makes a ton of sense. That sounds like a big but, though. Like in the, in you know the devil's in the details. Like yeah. great, go add all the high value things for enterprises, right? Yeah. Support contracts, HA, yeah. like permissions, ACLs, all those sort of things, right? But I imagine there's a lot of kind of devils in the details down there, and in particular, I'm curious around kind of like. How much did you worry about alienating that developer experience? Like, how do you test that going throughout, right? So, you say you don't want to change Docker Run. Yeah. How is that one experience that you identified? How did you go about yeah. saying, like, these are sacred to the developer? And how does that dichotomy kind of play out? Yeah, we started with the default that we weren't going to change any developer experience. And that was the easy first starting point. And how long did that last? That lasted fairly far, actually. I, I don't think we've actually changed anything in our commercial product. Now, what we had to do, I think this was an interesting architectural design problem, was how do you not change that interface but still provide, say, authorization controls around the ability to do Docker Run? So I want Craig to do Docker Run, but say Remus, oh, he can't do Docker Run. He yep. can only he can only you know view logs, right? So he can do Docker logs, but that's it. So being able to provide that, you know, call it middleware or proxy, that was, I think, the ingenious part on, you know, and I'll give credit completely to the development team to figure out how to bridge that gap. You know, in fact, in one of our products, we prevent customers from being able to exec into the container while still being able to do everything else. And so the ability to 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 do that, give them a you know an unauthorized and when they attempt to do it, but still allow them to do Docker logs, Docker run, Docker whatever else was critical. And so you know, we haven't gotten to the point where we've had to say, "Oh, that's not possible. We can't can't control that." But I'm sure it's coming, and I think we'll have to evaluate case by case whether it's something we say, "Well, this might be something we have to live without," or "Nope, we're gonna you know we're gonna put our heads to the heads to the grindstone and just figure it out." So one of the questions I have relative to going from developer to enterprise is mostly internal to the organization. Did you find that making that transition, or at least making that part of the product? Uh, manifest itself in challenges with internal culture or organization or anything else like that, because as you know, product is very much you know leading with a very soft touch. So, were there any challenges internally in the organization? Oh, absolutely. I, well, in, internal to our organization? Yes, to your organization, right? Ah, not, 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 yeah. not necessarily your customers, because yeah. customers have their own challenges. <laughs> it, it, exactly, right? Yeah. But you know, when you when you start out from the developer and then move to enterprise, sometimes there's a challenge to say, well. Well, like we've identified, the enterprise wants these things, but developer doesn't. So. Yeah, developers yeah. love building, you know, uh, advanced administration authorization screens, right? <laughs> like, yeah, totally. That's what they live for. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, that. That was an interesting challenge because, as you guys know, like with the roots in open source, every actually everything we've done on the commercial products is actually still rooted in the open source. And so, when we wanted to do things like add authorization controls, you know, the big question was, okay, so how do we do this if it's not in the open source project? Do we write a PR and try to get it in, or you know, do we just build it as a proprietary yep. functionality and just you know on our own? So we've opted to date to push that functionality into the open source. And so what we've said is, the right thing for us to do is actually to get this functionality. And we know that most individual developers, most open source uh, developers, don't want to add that stuff. So you know, we took on the burden of, hey, let's write the PR. Let's push it in there. We talk to the maintainers. We make sure they're okay with it. And we make sure it's directionally the right thing for Docker as a as a project, and then we push it through and hope for the best. Quite honestly, there have been cases where it didn't get there in time for us, or we didn't add the functionality when we needed it to. 
In some cases, we've lived without it and said, okay, we'll just wait. We'll wait for the community to agree that this is the right thing to do. I'm surprised, to be honest, I, I've been surprised that the community, nine times out of ten, has agreed with us. They've said, yep, that's a good thing for someone to do. We didn't want to do it, but it's good that you guys did it. Uh, great. You know, we'll I'm curious to probe a little bit more on that. On like yeah. internally, how excited are the developers to work on that? Or do you, is there kind of you know some tricks you've learned there to like, the, you know, there's the cool pieces, right? The yeah. the really awesome new technical feature, yeah. and then there's kind of like those permission controls um, yeah. and the open source project. Someone's got to write that, and yeah. you know, if I'm the developer, I'm I'm picking the former. Yeah. So I'm curious if there's any tricks or if like, have you just magically found developers that are happy to work on those things? You know, I, yeah, it's interesting. Um, on my team, for sure, I've got a very seasoned engineering team who's actually mostly been developing for the enterprise. And so what I think has worked for us is we've actually rotated folks into the open source project and then back out. And so with that rotation, we've got folks that understand how to respond to the community, how to work with the community, how to work with maintainers. And then on the other side, they've also seen the pain when a customer comes yelling and says, what do you mean you did HA this way? Or what do you mean you can only do basic auth and not Active Directory integration with Kerberos? Right. So that that's helped us a lot. That's a that's that a pretty rotation. interesting model, that rotation. Is that across the board? Is that some cases, is that kind of up to the engineer? Like how does that work? Yeah, so far it's been up to the engineer and we've we definitely promote it inside the company. So there has been for sure folks that have wanted to do it. We, you know, we encourage them to do it. I wouldn't say it's mandatory by any means yet. So there are folks that stayed in open source and only really want to work in open source, and there are other folks that haven't rotated into open source yet. But just even doing one or two engineers within a team dramatically changes the interface with that the team that they rotated out of. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, we saw some of that early on at Heroku actually, when we would have essentially team swaps where people would yeah. trade or you know interview with another team and swap, and that kind of cross rotation. Not doing it to everyone because some engineers really want to just stay where they are and they're yep. happy there, which is fine. Yeah. And you also have some good long-term knowledge that way. Yeah. But kind of that rotation creates, you know, some some shared understanding, which is nice. Yeah. Was that was that hiring on the, the you, you talk about having engineers that are very enterprise focused? Was that very intentional when you brought them into the company, or was that just happenstance? Yeah, it, I think it was very intentional. I mean, we interviewed folks that had that sort of background. I wouldn't say we we wouldn't have hired someone who didn't have that background, mm-hmm. but we definitely ran into folks, and, and certainly my my network of engineers, is they're all folks that have worked in enterprise. So you know, I pulled on right. those folks. Uh, there were a couple of guys from VMware who went off and did a startup called Netkind. Uh, we pulled them in and we said, hey guys, like come work on this really cool thing. They're like, oh yeah, this, this looks really familiar. Uh, I know exactly what to do. And you know, I know how to integrate with LDAP and AD, and I know how to make sure I can stream out to monitoring systems. And so, you know, I know where all the right pluggable uh, interfaces are. So, it was, yeah, it was very much something we focused on doing, but it wasn't by virtue of, you know, hey, we'll never hire anyone who's open source. We've we've actually added a couple folks that have been in open source projects and are now part of the team, and you know, they quickly catch on. Excellent. Now, does that kind of work? You know, I'm curious when you integrate those enterprise people, right? You've got a bunch of open source developers, and now here's a product manager from the enterprise, or here's a engineer from the enterprise. Like very different. Like, yeah. This probably goes back to you know when you were early, early your early days there, because now you guys are a bigger company. And I'm sure you adjusted to it pretty well. But how is that reaction? I find you know anytime you introduce product management to a group of engineers for the first time, it's like an immediate. Uh, no, you're not telling me what to do. I've been working all along. I know how to write code. <laughs> right. So, how do you kind of, you know, especially on the enterprise side, any tips from that? Any experiences learned that like we should have done it this way or this worked really well? Yeah, I think I was the first 
PM, uh, short of Scott Johnston, who, who runs the product management team himself, he came in with a lot of enterprise background. I was I was probably the first kind of line level PM that he hired that had enterprise experience, and I treaded carefully. And I I think my first learning was it wasn't that most folks were adverse to understanding it; they were largely ignorant of it, mm-hmm. and so. I spent a lot of time just getting, you know, one writing down all of my observations, even if there were things that I had heard a thousand times before. I wrote them down, shared them with folks, and I think over time, folks became more and more curious. But I think, you know, you're right. First PM into a, into an organization, uh, we were lucky. We only had three engineers working on the enterprise stuff at that point, so we didn't have a lot of kind of adverse reaction when I joined. So that was a hurdle I didn't have to cross. But just gaining the credibility of the team. Uh, making sure that even the open source team knew that I knew what I was talking about, or I had the experience. I didn't. I didn't start with the assumption that they trusted me or that they thought that I knew what I was doing. I would try to prove that, hey, you know, here's here's the customer discussions we've had to date. Summarize them, put them in a format that's easily digestible. Send them out to the team and say, here's what we're hearing, and let them come to the same conclusions that. You know, I may already knew, or I have a gut instinct about. So, you know, I, I think no different than entering any other engineering team, but something that you have to be more mindful of, especially when the team is looking at you and saying, "I, I don't even know who these customers are. I've never heard of these folks. They don't contribute. They don't try to contribute to the to the project. Uh, you know, why should we listen to them?" And I imagine it's even doubly so when you talk about some enterprise customers, right? Like some company that you know powers something that they use every day, but. It's an enterprise company they've never heard of, right? Right. Um, it's not a developer company. It's not Travis CI or not right. Circle CI. You right. know, it's right. it's like proprietary, you know, CI server company. Yeah. Or you know, they deliver uniforms, yeah. something like that. that. Exactly. Has a real business behind it, but isn't front and center in their mind. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the enterprise a little bit more in detail in that regard. I think uh, one of the challenges is recognizing that. Sometimes you're going to be selling to the enterprise, right? And that doesn't necessarily mean that the users of your product within that enterprise are going to be the same individuals. And this actually brings up one of the topics I really wanted to talk about today, which was packaging and pricing. So you, know, you think about enterprises being a small set of customers that you're trying to build things for. How do you price things differently for that Subset of the market versus you know the developers, which you may have hundreds, hundreds of thousands, where you know you can throw out pricing one day and change it the next. Yeah, no, it's uh, so it's an entirely different challenge uh, on the enterprise side. One in that you know, and, I, and I've talked to folks who've done SaaS models and have done um, you know developer-oriented tools. Uh, Justin Stepka, who joined Docker just about the same time I did, came from Atlassian, and so we compared a lot of notes about. You know what's it like to price developer tools versus, say, enterprise software. One of the interesting points was he said, you know, we raised prices at Atlassian like five times, and I was like, I I don't think at VMware we could have ever gotten away with something like that. Yeah, I think I actually vividly re- recall a talk from someone at VMware that I think tried multiple times to change pricing, and they're like, and I I think they finally did it once at the end of like a eight year tenure. Yep, and was like that sounds horribly painful. Yeah. And the one time we did change pricing at VMware, you know, we got blasted for it and we had to change it back. So oh, <laughs> it wow. didn't last very long. You know, the things we found out interestingly about trying to price for the enterprise even though there were developers who were using the product already. One was we knew we had to price around some resource that they were already buying and that they had a model for. So things like pricing around storage or pricing around servers 
that made a lot of sense to them. If you price around things like an application or, you know, in Heroku, the, what is it called? The Dino. Dino. The Dino. Dino. The Dino. Yeah. Right. Like we tried a couple of those models and a bunch of the, you know, enterprise customers looked at us funny. They were well, like, I think that's huh. a really interesting one because that dives into a really deep philosophical pricing debate, right? Yeah. Of like, are you pricing against a known entity? Yep. Especially like, you know, servers, right? Or memory, something like that. You're quickly in, in a commodity market suddenly then, right? Yes. Because yeah. there's already that anchor out there. I think Heroku is really interesting, and like this new Dino that comprises many of these things, isn't something they could anchor against. Yeah. So it was a good and bad, right? You yeah. had to educate along the way, but that anchor wasn't there. So I think it's a really powerful one. So interesting that you found that heavily anchoring against that, you know, gets you through a couple of those meetings with the accounting approval, that kind of stuff. Right. But interesting that you you didn't see some of those other things, or did you see some of those? Like, well, it's anchored to this, so. Yeah, you know, we got pushback on both ways. We at one point had gotten pushback that we weren't pricing against a resource like a dyno mm-hmm. uh, or memory, and folks were saying, "Well, I I don't really want you pricing against some physical object that you know you're, you're providing value on top of that object, but that doesn't really align with." Who's getting value out of the system? The guy who's buying the server doesn't really get the most out of Docker. The guy who's using that server happens to be using it with his containers. That guy gets a lot of value, but he could care less if it's one server or a hundred servers. So it was an interesting dichotomy. What we what we ended up deciding was, and we knew at some level we were going to have to tweak this model. We figured we'd just given where the market was around container and container orchestration. We decided let's focus on simplicity of our pricing model. Let's keep it one vector, not two. So we we actually initially started with two vectors of pricing. We said we'll charge you per node, and then we'll also charge you for the number of uh, instances of registry that you run. We were selling a registry at the time, and uh, that turned out to be difficult because they couldn't fathom how many registries they were going to run in two years from now or a year from now. So then we, you know, we simplified further to let's let's price down to a piece of resource, say a server, that you guys understand. We opted for that model, you know, to focus on simplicity. And just given how quickly the space was moving, we decided that being able to educate folks was not. We didn't have the liberty to do that. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, if I had to do it all over again, if the market was different and it was moving at a different rate. I would have opted for something like a dyno or you know some you know resource that we could control a little bit better, but just given how fast everything has been moving in the container space, we we decided that wasn't even an option we could consider. So you talk about speed in the container space, and part of you know this discussion right now is pricing. How how do you test pricing quickly with enterprise customers? Because <laughs> you you only have so many of them. You don't have thousands that you can go to and maybe do an A/B test or something. How do you, do you have any tips or tricks? I mean, on you those? also mentioned right there yeah. that like you know the price for a year or two. How am I going to be using like buying for two years from now? Like you know the yeah, I, I can imagine the the heavy bit portfolio companies thinking of like. Two years from now, like I can't even imagine what we're going to be building or selling or shipping at that point. Yeah, absolutely. much less you know writing a contract for two years from now. Yeah, no, it's it's crazy. I mean, we we have customers who who want to sign two year and three year contracts up front. They want to pay us all up front. They want to know exactly you know where we're going to be roadmap wise. I mean, you know, and, and and at some point you throw up your hands and say, well, this is my best guess, right? Given where the market is going, where the industry is going. But you can do experimentation. What's what's interesting, you know, my one piece of advice: don't list your prices if you're experimenting, right? So if you throw them on a website, sure. yeah, you know, very difficult to try out different models with different customers. When you do get to enterprises and you do want to experiment, you can, at some level, and and not not at extremes, but you can say with your first few customers, say, 
let's try this pricing model and let's try that pricing model. And you sign custom contracts. Now, that's mm-hmm. an overhead you have to bear in yep. your sales order, order management and your sales team and you know, in all of your back-end processes that you've got these weird custom contracts sitting back there. But it does allow you to experiment and learn and then you can, you can say, all right, I think we found a, a model that works and that's not going to drive us into the ground in a year. You know, let's let's move with that, and then then you can move into like. And so, what's for rough rule of thumb there? How many do you try? Do you try five, ten, twenty, a hundred? Oh yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't say do more than five. I mean, I think I think you can. So I'd say you can, you know, do five custom deals without getting too crazy. I think when you get into ten or twenty, then things start getting difficult because you will have those anyways. Because you have to remember, the moment you go into the enterprise, even if you standardize your pricing and said we're, we're pricing per dyno and it's you know five dollars a dyno or whatever, the moment you walk into Johnson and Johnson or you know ADP or something, they're going to do a custom deal anyways, and so you end up with those no matter what. Yep. And so you have to be ready to have a buffer of capacity to deal with all of that. But uh, I think if you do five, and then you know one one thing we did was we worked with a few consultants to actually. Interview our not our customer base, but our prospective customer base to get a sense of where they they were thinking in terms of pricing models and where to anchor, and that worked out really well. We got a, a lot of great feedback about what didn't work, and then we kind of shortened the range of what was a possibility, and then at that point we could experiment quickly and then you know work towards a scalable model. Excellent. Uh, you know, I want to go back to one of one of the things that we had talked about here, and that was. Don't show pricing on any on any website, right? And <laughs> right. and that's been one of my challenges selling to enterprises because if I have this dual market here where I'm selling to the developer and then on top of that I've got the enterprise, it's yeah. almost impossible to not put pricing on the the website because the developer just wants to. Here's my price. This is what I'm going to pay for it. Right. And any anything else that I can do on the developer side? I mean, yeah. this is quite the dichotomy. It's 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 a tough one. I, I I'd say. You know, if if you can validate your developer pricing model, it doesn't have to necessarily align with your enterprise pricing model, but if you can somehow segregate how they interact on your website, so it's not it's it's not that you can never have uh, pricing on your website. Mm-hmm. I think while you're experimenting, you can't you can't do it. But once you've experimented and you figured it out, then make it public and make it make it visible and make it known and allow people to come in and swipe and you know go grab uh, you know whatever they need. Especially if they're smaller and in, and they don't want to talk to your sales folks, uh, where there are plenty of plenty of organizations in the in the mid market who are like that. But yeah, if there's a way to segregate on your website, and and we you know we've tried to do this on our website, we have specific pricing uh, that we say is for server and for cloud, or you know we we actually have specific editions of our product, Docker data center versus Docker cloud, and they're very much geared towards different different types of customers, and so. Our Docker cloud pricing is right out in the open, transparent. Uh, you can forecast it. You can see exactly how much it's going to cost you for n number of repos and mm-hmm. x number of servers. Our Docker data center pricing, we we don't we don't forecast and we don't tell anything uh, about. We tell you to call us and we work it out and we try to figure out you know what's the right what's the right model for you. And you know as we as we worked through that, you know we're now getting to the point where we do want to publicize it. We want to make it well known and, and make sure people know that it's available and they can swipe and come get it. Yeah, I think that's a really important piece that uh, a lot of startups are really hesitant to like have a salesperson, right? And like funnel, uh, at least on the developer world, it's like I don't 
you don't want to have to talk to a salesperson. You don't have to funnel customers through the salesperson. But there is a certain class of customer there that wants to talk to a salesperson, that wants that high touch, and those that set of customers really will self-identify really well. Yeah. So just having them available, you don't have to push them through it, but just making it available to them lets customers self-identify pretty well. Yeah, yeah. We we at one point uh, we weren't even publicizing a phone number to call our sales team with. And we started getting emails from folks that said, "I want to talk to a salesperson. <laughs> please, please give me a phone number to call." And that's when we knew we had the right person. So, yeah, I mean, you, you definitely have to accommodate for both uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna you know be both a developer oriented as well as an enterprise oriented sale. So uh, we were talking a little bit earlier about going from developer to enterprise, right? And now we're talking about pricing and packaging, sales a little bit. How do you kind of have you found? Getting to that initial enterprise, right? Like Docker had so much initial momentum with developers. Yeah. And sure, enterprises heard about it, they'd asked, but how do you go in through an organization, right? How do you find the buyer? How did you find that experience? Any kind of tips on that side? Yeah, it, that was a real learning experience for us. As we started to engage, um, we found there were buyers at multiple levels. One, one would be the app development teams who may want to buy for their team alone. Very different. Type of buying experience, very different expectation on the price and budget too. Usually, and right? budget, yeah, very different model there. We also found, at least for us, the release teams, so build and release teams or DevOps teams, also would come to us and say, you know, well, you know, we're, we're interested in Docker. And again, similarly, like very different model of how they want to see things priced. They want to focus not on necessarily a Per user or per per resource type of pricing because they don't control the users and they don't control the servers, so they want something that's much more flexible. That's a one time you know one time hit buy this server buy this instance type of pricing, and their budgets are much smaller than say operations teams. And then I would say that the third bucket is your operations teams or your central IT teams or even central purchasing for enterprise developers. Those guys are the ones that spend big. Yep. So that you know when they they kind of come out of the woodwork and and you find them, uh, and sometimes you have to travel the organization to find those folks. So we started a lot with the individual developers. What I think was helpful for us is when we got to the release teams, they were very happy and eager to pass the purchasing process over to the ops team and say, well, those guys will buy it. They've got the budget. They've got a lot of budget, so let them buy it, and we'll use it. <laughs> yeah, so. that, that makes a lot of sense. It reminds me a little bit of Redgate tools. So yeah. they build kind of tooling for SQL Server, and their model was like, give it to the DBAs, really kind of land and expand, like mm-hmm. get a free version, get a cheap version, and then go into the enterprise and say, look, you need this, and the you know purchasing would be like, no, we're fine, and it's like, but you've got fifteen people in your organization. Buying it right, yeah. and um, I, I recall one interesting piece. One of the former founders of Redgate wrote a, I think it's a thirty-page book, a usefully short guide to pricing. Um, and one of his big takeaways was price the product to the purchasing power of that person, mm-hmm. which is interesting because you can have a price point then right there for the single user, but then for your enterprise, you know, IT purchaser kind of approved of spending for the entire IT. It's a very different kind of process and price point that you want to be at for that. Yep, absolutely. I I, I couldn't agree more. I think. Finding your buyer is, there's a phrase we used to say even at VMware, which was your your buyer, your user, and the person you market to can all be different people. And so you have to know how to make sure you're talking to the right person when it's a buying situation and what their buying power is versus what uh, what you may be marketing, you know, who you may be marketing to versus who may actually end up using your product. And those may be three independent people with three entirely different motivations. And May in fact be 
people who who view your product very differently. Uh, that's that's another I think friction we found as well is that sometimes the buyer doesn't know what exactly what they're buying into. The guy who's using it does, and that person you know may give you very distinct feedback about you know what pricing they may al- allow for or may accommodate in a POC, and uh, what you know what they're willing to pay for something or how they want to use it. Yeah, and I think it's it's probably not a well known fact to a lot of startups, but like certain buying spending limits are like tied right to your rank. Like, yep. And it's pretty standard across a lot of enterprises yep. that I have the purchasing power of $100 a month or $1,000 a month, and being able to anchor to that can be really powerful. Yeah, It seems like we're circling around a concept, and one of the things that I like to do when I'm you know, working in enterprise-type situations is actually building personas for the people that I'll be selling to or marketing to. Do you find that that's um, useful in this context, and or you know, do you do those exercises yourselves? Yeah, we we did actually when I when I first started at Docker, we started actually with personas. We actually called them after Star Wars characters. Uh, so it was kind of <laughs> funny. Um, and Scott even went so far as to actually buy a dummy that we dressed up. We had a Han Solo uh, persona uh, for the DevOps uh, what, engineer. What persona did that embody? It was the DevOps engineer. Okay, and so oh, good, good. we uh, we actually had Han Solo sitting in a chair, fully dressed with like his you know his outfit. Any little sign that says, you know, I'm the DevOps engineer. We even had little Han Solo figures on our desk uh, to remind us that this was the person who we were talking to mostly on a day to day basis. So, yeah, I think buyer personas and user personas are, are key to this entire equation. So, once we figured out who the, you know, I think, I think sometimes it's easy to think about who the user is. Like, I know the guy who's going to be actually working on this product day, to, day in and day out because that's where you start your problem statements with. Mm-hmm. But figuring out who's going to be the actual buyer is, I think, you know, where you start engaging with your sales teams and where you start going out and actually working with them on, on accounts and trying to find that buyer. And oh, so you were out there uh, hitting the street with the oh, sales team? Absolutely. I mean, okay. early on, early on, you know, it was as important for me to be on the street with the sales team as much as it was for them to be, you know, sitting and watching demos of our product internally. Um, so we tried to share as much of that as early on as possible. We came up with three different buyer personas, and then you know we kind of outlined what we thought and the motivations around each one, and we keep iterating on them. So we're we're still working on them. Uh, they're not perfectly tuned by any means. But I think it's something. Even even when I was at VMware, we kept doing year after year. Every mm-hmm. six months, we just revisit them and say, "Are these are these the right personas?" And if if you can't find them, that's that's when you know you got to hit the streets and got to do some research. Definitely. Well, you know that's what they say about product management. It's never done, right? That's it's never right. it's never finished and perfect. That's right. right. And <laughs> and no answers are in the building. So, uh, shifting a little bit, we talked a lot about kind of the product management practice and. Um, been fortunate to know Solomon and Scott for a little while now, and it's been interesting because Docker has so much hype, right? And I think most companies would would kill for that, but there's a lot of hype that it cures cancer, right? And it does all of these things. How do you manage that kind of expectation, both internally but also externally, right? As you're you're building the product to kind of a a future state, how do you manage those expectations on the product side? Yeah, it's um, you know, it's it, I think it's it's definitely been difficult. With customers, because the moment they see something ship, even if it's a 1.0, they look at it and they they expect the world. They expect it to do everything that every other competitor can already do, or something they've built internally. They they're like, you know, you guys are Docker. There must be like thousands of people in that company. There isn't, you know. So you guys must be able to like build this like lickety split, no problem. So it's been extremely important for us to work with the sales team and the sales engineering teams. 
and we have a small number, so it's so it's easy. But you know, we we keep them very much abreast of what's coming in the product, what's there today, where are the caveats, what are the conversations that you should have up front. So if we really think this is a really good prospect, we're talking to a customer and we think you know this is this is a very potential, uh, you know, very big purchase and a and a potential customer. We tell them let's let's be transparent with them about what's there and what's not there. And we don't want to get into a situation where they expect something that's not in the product. So that to me is, you know, the, the tight loop with sales and sales engineers is so important early on. And it doesn't seem like an obvious thing to do because even if you, you know, you're still in uh, development of the product, we were, you know, even pre beta and, you know, we're not even alpha. I mean, we were literally just, you know, had a prototype and we were getting, trying to get our first, first iterations done. You know, that was the time to actually set, Start setting some expectations with customers and with our partners, as well as with our own sales team. But you know, I'd say for for most startups, uh, you know, if you've got a small sales team, keep them close, keep them keep them as close to engineering as you can, not, not next to an engineer, but you know, keep. You them, mean sales can sometimes distract engineering? Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> hey, could you just do this one thing for this one customer? But I think it's important for them to see all the warts. And and know that the warts are there because they can they can help you sell around them too. That yep. you know sometimes what we think is you know impenetrable, awful gap in the product, they look at and say, I can find a way to sell around that. That's that's not horrible. And and I'll make sure the customer knows, but uh, that's that's not something that should prevent us from closing a deal. You mentioned uh, that kind of tight iteration, that tight loop with them. Like how does that how does that work? Is that you know just face to face email? Like what are your mechanisms there for actually staying in that tight loop with sales? Yeah, for me, the way we kept uh, tight loops, and we didn't we didn't do it as well as I I had wanted to. But I think the things I would advise are, you know, one have some sort of whether it's the end of a sprint or maybe it's at the end of every other sprint. You give them a quick roundup of you know here's where the product is. So let them let them see the product in its early stages. Let them ask questions. So we would have very open demo sessions uh, so that you know the sales team or sales engineering team or product marketing team and you know at this point they were, we're talking about one or two people like inviting them into the room and, and letting them see what's there or recording it and sending it out for them was important. We also set up right away Slack channels. Uh, you know we've been using Slack internally. We set up Slack channels so that. Sales, engineering, product management—we could all be on the same channel. When we were small enough, it worked. Eventually, we carved off a you know a development-only channel so that the developers and product managers could have their say without kind of always putting something out there that might not be ready for sales digestion yet. So that worked really well. Honestly, we we used in-person Slack and email, and that depended a lot on how the team digested it. So. Hmm. Uh, I would say our, our our VP of sales was a big email fan. Our sales engineers loved Slack, and product marketing loved in person. And so we would we would do all three, uh, and that took a lot of diligence on our part to make sure we were consistent across all three mechanisms. But you know, it was just. Depends on how the organization kind of grows up communicating. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of a key piece of, of product management, right? Like you're kind of the the interface to so many other teams that yeah. it's important for you not to for them to interface with you, but you to figure out how to interface with them yeah. so that so that they hear it, so that it's the mechanism that they like. Yeah, it's 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 not that you send an email out to the entire company. You have to assume that no one read it, and you have to make sure they they actually consumed it some other way. That's right. That's right. And you know, if if you can train folks, which is I think over time what we've done is now trained our sales engineers to come to us via Slack, 
we've eliminated at least one of those one of those mechanisms. You know, so we've we've started to move away from email and just do pure Slack. You know, and how was that process? Like, what, how did you train them in that process? So, you know, we we started sending things via email, and then over time, we would say, okay, well, we're going to start announcing these types of things on Slack only. And then over time, you know, they actually appreciated Slack much, much more than say the account managers did. But over time, the account managers kind of followed their lead, and so it took a little time. You know, it took us probably about three or four months, but now we're we're just all on Slack, and so it just comes across on Slack. Everyone sees it. You can assume largely that everyone's read it, and then uh, we try to still do a roll up every so often and say, okay, you know, here's here's everything that's happened, just to make sure you're still aware. Talking about sales, one of the things that you know all the salespeople I interact with really want to know is roadmap, right? We touched yeah. <laughs> we touched on that word once today, oh, and man. you know once they get a hold of that roadmap, man, it's like sales are just happening all over the place by what's in that roadmap. How do you? I know there's a, a want to share stuff like we've just been talking about, but how do you manage that expectation between roadmap, which may or may not happen in the future, and yeah. You know, giving your sales team enough information to make that next deal. Yeah, that was tough. <laughs> that was an area of friction, especially when you haven't shipped yet, right? So you're Definitely. like pre 1.0, and everyone's like, okay, what's coming? And then as soon as 1.0 hits, everyone's like, oh, what's coming next? <laughs> uh, so I think two things that we learned there. One was as soon as we shipped our 1.0, we tried to have a roadmap ready. But that roadmap was only accessible through product management. Now we found out pretty quickly that was not scalable because almost every customer looked at our 1.0 and said, "Okay, these are interesting features, but I want the next things. Like, where are you headed?" What do you mean by only accessible like through product management? So we we literally hit it in a folder and we said, "If you if you want to have a roadmap discussion with a customer, we will not tell you what's in the roadmap unless you bring a product manager into the room." And so that that helped us in that, two that ways. That feels pretty safe. Like that yeah. in like my default experience is mm-hmm. I don't want. A sales guy is promising, you know, the product features that I don't know what's. I'm not in the meeting, so I don't know that's what's right. said. That's right. So you know, that's I think the traditional kind of conservative approach, which worked for a little while, and then as we started to grow and add more uh, account managers, one of the things we did was we enabled one or two of the SEs that we really trust, and we worked with our our SE manager, uh, Chad Metcalf, who had come over from Puppet Labs. Uh, we worked with him, and we said, we want to give you the roadmap. And we're going to tell you exactly what's in there. And we knew he was technical enough, and he was, you know, savvy enough to know when to promise and when not to promise. In fact, he never promised, so that was great. Uh, <laughs> but what we did was we enabled him on the roadmap. And once once we did that, what happened was interesting. Was we were able to use the roadmap as a selling tool as well. So we actually had him talking about the roadmap and then coming right back to us with feedback about a f- given feature and he you know at one point in our 1.0 we had kind of Roger who was running who's running sales called kind of our four magic features and he's like I need these four features to sell the product you get them in as quickly as possible and, you know we'll sell this thing. And we said great. We need to know which one comes first. And Chad was able to get through a number of customer conversations Find out that you know here here was the one magic feature that if we could do it that would push everyone over the edge and we we basically upturned our entire roadmap to get that one feature in before anything else and so just by enabling you know say an SE that we trusted and being a part of those conversations as well we were able to figure out that there was a single feature that was really mm-hmm. going to make it so now now we've gotten to the point where we've got enough product out there they're not selling roadmap anymore. And when we do want to have a roadmap discussion, we're back to okay, call a product manager, which works well. 
we did have a point where we put together enough of a roadmap that was, say, based on first half, second half, or you know, next quarter, and then everything else, that we gave the sales team and said, if you need this, pull it out, but you can't promise anything. You have to call us before you promise promise a customer one of these features. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think you know the conservative side is always safest if you can be there. Yeah. But kind of deputizing an, an SE to be able to you know have the technical details, not promise too much, and then also come back and kind of wear that associate PM hat and say like, okay, I can prioritize things too because I'm hearing the customer you know conversations and. They're already in a lot of them, so yeah. it's not an extra meeting for them. It's not extra time out of their calendar. That's right. And getting that validation of sales would come back and say, you know, oh, these four—they're all my top priority. Actually, getting that ranked list is important. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it helped us a lot, and and you know, it depends how big your sales organization. So I think for most startups, you want to be in every conversation anyway. So you hold the roadmap tightly to your chest, but uh, as your team grows, you have to find a way to scale it and not, you know, get it out there and kind of full public view, but. Use it as a way to help help you prioritize, and your your SEs can do that. That's something that you know they probably should be trained uh, and enabled to do. That was actually my next question, which was, you know, when when's that progression from holding it tight to your chest to then you know giving it out? Because I feel like that's commiserate with the growth of the team, and yeah. I feel like it's, yep. it's there's got to be some inflection point where you say, okay, this is it. Now it's time to switch over. Yeah, I think we we got to I think four SE. And I think we had about a dozen account managers at that point. And so that was the point at which, depending on how busy they were, and they got mm-hmm. to a point where they were busy enough that we couldn't scale to accommodate all those conversations. And they were, and to be honest, it wasn't necessary for us to be in the conversation to figure out exactly what the feature was. We knew what the feature, we knew the feature they were going to ask us about. And you're not usually in that first conversation either. It's the That's second right. or third or fourth. The so they're taking a lot more meeting. It's not every, it's not That's a one-to-one right. mapping of their meetings. Exactly. Exactly. So we weren't in every meeting. We were, it was the 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 meeting where they said, okay, we want to talk about your roadmap or we want to talk about this feature. When is it coming? And that would be the point where, you know, we weren't, I mean it was only two of us in product management at that point, uh, outside of Scott. And so at that point, you know, we knew we had to scale a little bit farther. But you know, I'd say it came and went. So mm-hmm. we we scaled out and then we kind of scaled back and we said, okay, now that there's enough product out there and you guys are selling today's product, not tomorrow's, we've got enough in the 1.0 or the 1.5 or the 2.0, now keep selling. Now we you know, we've gone back to holding our, our roadmaps to our chest and saying, Yep, nobody knows the roadmap except us. Call us when you need it. Definitely. Was there ever a period that you never had an SCE on the team, and you were playing that role for a little while? I was lucky when I I came in and I joined uh, literally at the same time. Uh, Chad Metcalf, who is our SE uh, SE manager, uh, he came on at exactly the same time. I would say we were tag teaming for a little while. Um, okay. You know, he was hitting accounts. I would I I actually wanted to be in those conversations as well. So uh, I told him I said, if there's any conversation you can't be at and you need an SE. I used to be one, so you know it'd be great to help out. And he was like, "Wonderful!" <laughs> you know, <laughs> he just once, deputized be careful you. Right? Sign up for <laughs> he there. deputized me, and then you know, once the account team found out, then I, I literally like my calendar just got booked for two weeks uh, with you know back to back meetings, which again was a great learning experience. Uh, you you learn a lot by hearing your account manager pitch the same thing that you're trying to build, and hear how they're positioning it. And then see if they've got a backpedal or dance or whatever it is. And then you know sometimes they'll just put you on the spot and say, "Well, you know, Benjot, since you're here, why don't you pitch the product?" And then you do your own dance, and you know, it's a it's a fun uh, it's a fun tap dance once in a while. All right. Well, uh, thanks for the time today. Uh, I think My we pleasure. covered a lot on you know 
developers, enterprise, and I spread in between. I guess you know before we kind of just wrap up, any like big advice from like going from that developer to enterprise? Anything we didn't cover today? Any tips or tricks for other PMs out there that are you know or founders kind of working on that developer crowd and starting to think about the enterprise? Yeah, I mean. Uh... Maybe just to kind of summarize the things we talked about, I think you know developers are a different buying experience. They're a different user experience. They are an entirely different persona than than I think, you know, if you've traditionally sold to enterprise than what you're used to, and vice versa. If if you've largely sold to developers, then you know selling and users of the enterprise look entirely different, and the way they buy and what they buy, and what they buy on, uh, is entirely different. So. Uh, it's good to know both sides of the audience if you're selling to both, uh, and if you have to, or if you can figure out your funnel from one to the other, then figure out exactly you know how you market or have users that are developers but buyers that are enterprise, uh, and it's possible to do. So you know we're we're certainly starting to see that in Docker, and I think you know it's something that every startup uh, should be heartening to hear that 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 is a very very possible business model. Yeah, awesome to hear that it, it is possible. And, uh, you know, um, just because you have a ton of free developers, you can actually create a business on the other side. So thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Thank you very much. Thank you, Craig. Thanks, Remus. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you have a PM topic you'd like us to dive into, you can reach us at practicalproduct at heavybit.com or on Twitter at practicalprod. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. 